Welcome to Yo! Today. I'm Paul Pepis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Anita Shari, uh, Associate Professor of Political Science and Faculty in Residence in the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. She is also a faculty affiliate in the departments of German and Scandinavian Studies and Comparative Literature. Professor Chari is a political theorist focusing on critical theory, the Frankfurt School, and Western Marxism. She's the author of A Political Economy of the Senses, Neoliberalism, Reification Critique from Columbia University Press, part of the New Directions in Critical Theory series from 2015. Chari also focuses on the relationship between somatics and politics and the role of contemplative and sensate pedagogies and methodologies in political theory. She takes a pragmatist approach to embodiment and its significance for political theory by exploring specific movement practices, including continuum movement, biodynamic craniosacral therapy, and open source forms, practices that engage the interface between the somatic and mental registers. In addition to her scholarly pursuits, Professor Chari is a cellist, singer, composer, and creative writing. Thanks, Anita, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us. Thanks for having me, Paul. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you wound up doing what you do, being a political theorist. Well, it's a big question, but you know, I guess so much goes into of what we think of intellectual formation. I think for me, what I would say is my background, like first of all, I think of the background of my ancestry, my family, my parents are Indian. So, um, you know, I think the immigrant experience was a big part of what led me in a way to academia. Um, that led me to want to question aspects of society that I found in some way alien or, I don't know, um, I, I think as a, from a young age, I saw society as kind of a hieroglyphic. And so for me going into studying politics um, as a kind of study of also everyday life and culture, um, not just politics in the traditional sense that we think of it, was really informed um, by my background in that way. And that kind of led me in a way to critical theory to the Frankfurt School, who was really um, engaged with thinking about culture as being a central aspect of how we understand political reality, how we understand also what capitalism does to uh, our perception, our consciousness. Um, and so studying uh, at the University of Chicago, you know, I studied with people like Moish Postone and Patchen Markell and people who were doing exciting work uh, in critical theory at the time. And so that kind of led me in that direction. And I think also back then studying French theory, um, people like Jacques Rancière um, were really looming large at the time, you know, in, in the public consciousness, at least in, in critical theory, political theory. And so that was a big influence on me. Um, then. Um, and then I think throughout grad school then I came to this place of really wanting to think about the body. Um, and I think that's partly because I understood that critique was really falling short in some ways. There was a way that, you know, I didn't feel like I was embodying the concepts that I was studying in critical theory. And so that led me on this whole kind of journey of finding people who were doing deep work with marrying the kind of conceptual and the sensate, and that continued to inform me to this day. So let's talk a little more specifically about the kind of work that you do as a scholar by talking a little bit about um, the first book of Political Economy of the Senses, Neoliberalism, Reification, Critique. Can you give us like a, an overview of that project and that book? Yeah, sure. So. It's funny because I make the joke that I have to almost like restudy my book to re to to go back into it. But you know, it's about the concept of reification, 
um, which is a concept that was really central to Marx's critical theory, which was also central to Georg Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist's work, um, and also people like Theodor Adorno, who, you know, for whom it was really crucial, even though he, he transformed the idea of the concept. And what reification really is, to me anyway, is it's most centrally about the way that we lose, uh, in capitalist society, how we lose participatory involvement with the objects and dimensions of social reality that we are participating in, such that we see them as something that lacks human agency, that's alien from us, and therefore that we have no power to change, essentially. And um, you know, for Marx, this was something he saw in just the commodities of everyday life. But um, once you get to Lukács, it broadens as a concept to really something we can understand um, as a broader political phenomenon of consciousness. So. You, you are engaged in a second uh, monograph project. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, well, so my second book kind of goes in a different direction, even though it definitely really is taking up from these themes. Because in a way, that book, my first book, really went in this direction of understanding the limits of critical theory at the threshold of the body, really. And that's why I called it the political, econo uh, political economy of the senses. Mm -hmm. And so my second book actually goes more into the sensate politics by way of a conceptual artist that started to fascinate me when I wrote that book. And I actually wrote about them even in that first book and they're called Claire Fontaine. And they are, they, I call them they because it's two people working under one name uh, as a collective. Um, Claire Fontaine is a conceptual artist that makes really interesting work that's playing with critical theoretic concepts but in the form of objects. Mm -hmm. And so one of the major strategies of their work is that the, is the ready-made form. So they, they have a lot of objects that they kind of lift from political reality and kind of activate in different ways, perhaps by like changing one detail of them or by kind of involving the spectator in an unexpected way. And so their work became really compelling to me, not just as kind of a work about an artist, but really as an artist that's participating in critical theory on, on, a, on the same level really as a critical theorist, but with completely different means because they're doing it through the artistic medium. And so my book is really exploring the techniques that they're using as a kind of alternative methodology, experimental methodology for critical theory that kind of brings this more haptic, tactile, uh, sensate dimension into critical theory. So you've already made very clear uh, from your description of the first book and the second project that central to your scholarly approach is analyzing the relationship between somatics and politics. So why? Why is that important? Why do you need to do that work? You know, for me, it's a very personal question mm -hmm. because like the way I came to somatics was not actually in an intellectual way, but it was really something that came to me in my body. Mm -hmm. And that was because, you know, I, I think, I know you went to the University of Chicago too. I was in, I was there at a time where I felt that academia was just so highly cerebral. Mm -hmm. And that place in the world exemplified that perhaps to me more than any other that I had ever seen. And I found that exciting. And I also, at a certain point in my career early on, found it limiting and found it, um, you know, also it, it created issues for me. You know, it helped me see that, you know, just even in my body, um, it wasn't a healthy way of being. 
but also it wasn't actually allowing me to really live and embody the critical concepts that I was interested in. So it was like on both levels that I, I came to a real crisis in myself where I had to really search for like, how can these concepts land? You know, how, where do they exist? Because I'm a theorist, you know, I'm not somebody that does like empirical work in that way. So I had to go through this real journey with myself of, wow, I'm interested in theory, I'm interested in philosophy, and yet I'm also interested in how do we understand how it changes consciousness, how it changes practices, and I wasn't seeing that being addressed. Uh, and so for me, somatics became a way of understanding shifts and transformations in, in our awareness, in our perception as political beings. And, and I think, you know, when you think about what has been going on in our public sphere, especially since 2016, I don't think you can fully understand all of that without really understanding the body, without really seeing how there's so many dimensions of unconscious reality that are playing into the polarization that we experience, uh, on, you know, no matter where you stand politically. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we have to be able to sense ourselves in a different way to be able to, um, to really navigate those divides. Can you talk a little bit about how these contemplative and sensate uh, practices have enhanced your life as a woman of color, as an academic, and as a teacher? Yeah, yeah, I mean, because it's truly changed my practice and my life. Um, I started doing embodied practices, like I said, in graduate school. And I really came to it like while I was writing, while I was writing up my dissertation on Adorno and Marx and, you know, super, super high theory. Uh, and, and then I was in Los Angeles, actually, where I was writing up my dissertation. And I met somebody who became really important to me as a mentor, Angelica Singh, who actually is someone I work with now as a collaborator, and really started to un deepen into like, what does it mean to sense my body, you know? And to me, it became something that I realized, I realized that I was dissociated from my body and that the academia had played a big role in reinforcing that. But so does colonialism. So do a lot of aspects of the forms of domination that we see in, in contemporary society, right? Uh, so I, in that deepening into my body, it deepened in a way also my understanding of critique which was interesting because I'm a political theorist um, in some way at heart. And, and so it changed my life to be able to integrate those dimensions and to really know that it, intellectual creativity doesn't just have to be cerebral. It allowed me to start kind of experimenting more with the forms that I was writing in, with the, the creative writing that I was doing, but also with classroom practices. You know, I started to realize that students have a deep need for this too, just as I did and um, that changing that aspect of higher education was a big, um, a big goal for me. So let's talk a little bit about that aspect of what you do. So you mentioned Angelica Singh, who's your, who's your collaborator in this uh, Embodying Your Curriculum project, correct? Yeah. So tell us about that project and how it, it starts to do this work that you were just alluding to. Yeah, thanks. Uh, for me, you know, Embodying Your Curriculum has been this culmination. It's an organization that I started with, Angelica Singh. She's a somatic educator who has been doing deep embodied work for her whole career for the last, you know, 20 years. And so I partnered up with her in, in grad school when I was just wanting to deepen and learn about um, how I can start to bring these kinds of practices into my work and in my classroom. And that kind of work really grew over the last 15 years, such that I, that's what I was doing in my classroom. And then the pandemic hit, and there was this moment where it just started to become a societal conversation. It wasn't just this 
thing, this marginal thing that I was doing in my classroom, it started to all of a sudden become something that I could talk to with a lot more people. It wasn't just a niche thing. And there was a need. And so Angelica and I at that moment really saw that, like people need uh, help right now. People need support to shift uh, the dynamic, especially given online education and what students were going through, but also what faculty were going through. I mean, just as a society, we were all in a kind of collective shock in a lot of ways. That was the accumulation of many different shocks, not just the pandemic. And so we, we decided to embark on this project of embodying your curriculum. And so we train faculty um, all from institutions all around the country and even internationally in how to bring trauma-informed and embodied practices into their classrooms and, and research and lives. So tell us first, how do you bring those practices into the classroom now that the pandemic is over and we're back teaching in person. How, how do you do this? What, what happens in your classroom that's unusual uh, given con conventional understandings of what's going on in a classroom? Well, in my classroom, I tend to begin pretty much every class that I teach with what I call a grounding practice. And so what that is, is it's a few minutes at the beginning of class where I lead students through a, a practice where they really get to sense their bodies, where they tune into sensation in their physical bodies and they get to just settle down into a lower place into their bodies. And part of that is really, it's based on trauma-informed understandings of what happens to the nervous system when we're in stress, what, what happens when we get into a fight or flight state and we can't really settle because of the stacked kinds of over, overwhelming things that are happening to students. And so part of my philosophy is that like beginning the class with a moment, you know, even just almost, you know, maybe five minutes or, or a little less even of time for my students to really just include all of that, include it and really process it at a, at a physiological somatic level. And then, you know, we go on and we have our classroom and we have our class and in some ways it might look like what a normal classroom might look like, but there are all kinds of other practices I weave in beyond that, whether it be different kinds of inquiry to kind of relate their personal experience to the intellectual content, or we'll work with different kinds of like listening practices or different kinds of like partner practices. And all of that is taken from this repertoire of work that I do with embodying your curriculum that I've been working on for the last 15 years. So how do the students respond? Well, they respond in different ways. You know, I think a lot of students are really, they really are grateful. Actually, I think I see that a lot of students feel at some level deeply met by being able to just have a few minutes where nothing is being asked of them, where really it's like, you are here and what you know is, is valuable just as you show up rather than you're here and I'm going to talk at you for the next hour and fill you up with knowledge, you know, which, you know, as much as we might say is not what we want to do as professors is often how a class might look like. And, um, and you know, it's like we, I think I find myself doing that too, you know, and I think that this is a way of giving dignity to a student's experience before we ask anything of them, understanding that they're a whole person. They have lives that go far beyond what they're doing in our classroom that day. And so that, that I think is really important. Can you see evidence of the benefits in the outcomes or the, the performance of the students? Yeah, I would say I do. I would say I do. I mean, I think that I, I feel it the most in their own understanding and expression of what they've learned, you know, and the ways that they're able to transform, um, transform and deepen into 
understandings that maybe were opposed to what they might have thought of before. You know, for example, and I, I mean, I could talk more about this, but I teach a class in a, in a prison uh, through the Inside Out Education Project, which we have here at the U of O. And in that class, you know, I see it most palpably more than in any other class, because I think what you have is a lot more diversity going on in the classroom. And you see people cross boundaries, cross the divides, that they might previously have been have taken, you know, as self-evident, and that that comes through to me really palpably. I mean, in terms of more objective ways, I think I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think I'm more of a, a sensory kind of intuitive, empathic person. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So it's just um, you mentioned the work you do in the Inside Out Prison Education Program. So just so our uh, audience understands. Just describe what's unique about that program. What, what's it like? Who does it involve? Where does it happen? Yeah, so the Inside Out Prison Education Program at the U of O is, it's an amazing program. We actually have one of the best prison education programs in the country. It's, it's a program run by Shaul Cohen and Katie Dwyer and other faculty on campus who have nurtured it basically from the ground up, Steve Shankman. And what the program does is it brings students from the U of O campus to take classes alongside students who are incarcerated. And so every week we go, and the class is, is comprised of 50% of each type of student. And along the way, we just have a lot of opportunities to really have experiences that are much more intense than I think you have in an average classroom because of the setting and because of the kinds of levels of diversity that you're navigating. Yeah, it's an amazing program. I, I once had the, the privilege of observing us one class of, the, of, a, of a prison class with Steve Shankman, the, who was the director of the Humanities Center. It's an incredible experience just to be a spectator on that. Um, so one of the things that you do is you do workshops for f scholars, uh, faculty, on trauma-informed pedagogy. So tell us about those. Yeah, so with embodying your curriculum, but also just uh, on my own, you know, at the U of O, I've done quite a bit of this too. I teach workshops on trauma-informed pedagogy. And, um, you know, the work is really going into people's departments and really trying to have these deeper conversations about, okay, what are we facing in terms of our students, right? What, what are the responses we're getting in this post, post if we are post-pandemic time? And what are the kinds of embodied practices we can bring to start to shift that paradigm, but also an understanding of trauma? Because I think as professors, uh, we don't necessarily, we talk about trauma a lot more in, now in our society. I don't think though that we really um, deeply understand what it is, which, Trauma is really, uh, a, it is a phenomenon of the body, and it is when we ex have ex overwhelming experiences of any kind, whether they're physical or emotional, um, you know, the whole gamut, or ancestral, if we think about racialized trauma, and we think about the way that that gets recapitulated in light of contemporary events and ongoing police violence against African Americans. So, Trauma includes all of those. And whether the class itself is talking about any of those subjects, our students and ourselves, right, we're coming in holding a, whole, holding a lot of that in our bodies, in our consciousness, right? And if we don't talk about that, right, if we don't name that, if we don't try to meet that with a level of depth, then it, what it results in, I think, is a lot of apathy in the classroom. It results in a kind of a flatlining of the energy. And, and I think we see that a lot. That's a result of overwhelm, in my opinion. And it's not an easy thing to tackle because, because of technology, because of all the things that are happening right now, climate change, 
all of that, students have a lot to navigate that we as young people just didn't have to deal with. And so I think part of what we do in these workshops is really start to, first of all, just name these dimensions and start to show how if we can bring different kinds of practices that tune into that in the body, we can start to shift those dynamics. And it may not feel good at first to be in, in contact with these dimensions, but that at least is movement rather than just ignoring it and pretending like we can just go on with the same academic paradigms we've always gone on with. So let's talk a little bit about um, what you're doing in the classroom. So during the 2023-24 academic year, you and your uh, Clark Honors College colleague, art historian Kate Mondlock, will team teach a new course supported by the OHC's Coleman Gateau Teaching Fellowship called Body Politic and the Art of Perception. Tell us about that course. Yeah, we are really excited to teach this course, Body Politic. So Kate Mondlock is an art historian, and so her specialty is really you know, visual arts and, and really bringing a kind of contemplative dimension to perception, to sight and to visual perception, and which, which to me is really crucial in this moment because we are such a visual society, right? We are so focused on screens and we're, um, in a way, that process of being immersed in screens is something that can be somewhat dissociative. It can take us out of our bodies if we don't have uh, a deep awareness of, of what it's doing, right? So um, Kate brings that really profound understanding through a lot of different kinds of practices she's devised that are contemplative in nature and very experiential to help us to gain more awareness about that. Uh, and then my work uh, is more in this realm of really embodiment and how we can start to work through the trauma informed dimensions, but in a societal lens. So thinking about the whole history of disembodiment, right? Disembodiment and dissociation isn't something that happened to us yesterday. Something that Freud was writing about in the early 20th century when you know he was thinking about shell shock after the world wars. So um, that that historical dimension is something we're interested also in bringing to the fore. And then, and then throughout the course, we want to weave a lot of experiential practices so that it's not just that we're reading books about embodiment. We're really teaching the students um, as a group how to practice some of these practices so that we can come to a different understanding, even in the process of learning. So could you give an example of what one of those practices would be in the classroom? Well, we're still kind of devising these, you know, but they, they're gonna look, some of them are gonna look very similar to the work that I do. I could give one from Kate's repertoire that we were actually just working with recently, which was that it's a practice about um, perceiving color. Mm -hmm. And what she did in this practice was to kind of have people, first of all, um, look around and just see how they perceive color uh, as they're turning around slowly. And then, and then to have them do it a second time to try to really, um, to try to tune in at a deeper level to how we would perceive color if we focused on it in a deeper way. So these kinds of ways of like isolating certain dimensions of perception um, will allow us to kind of think about, you know, kind of deconstruct in a way our everyday understandings of, of perception that, mm -hmm. that happen without much awareness, right? So we wanna bring more awareness to that. Yeah, so fascinating. So let's talk about another one of your classes. You teach a class on popular music and politics. Tell us about that one. This is one of my most, one of my favorite courses, music and politics, which right now I'm teaching it, or last quarter I taught it in the Honors College, but I also teach it in political science. And you know, I, I'm interested in music like at a personal level, just from a young age, I'm a musician. Um, but I also think music 
is such a crucial cultural phenomenon to understand, even like as a political phenomenon, as a political theorist, because it's about enjoyment, really. And ultimately, I would say that class as just a broad theme is about really thinking about the politics of enjoyment. You know, why do we enjoy the music that we enjoy, basically? Because everybody enjoys some kind of music. I think you'd be hard pressed to find anyone who just doesn't have an opinion about the music that they like, right? So, and I think that's true of students, right? Most of the time they have pretty, you know, they have pretty firm commitments to a type of music that they're into. But we don't always think about the history of that music. And it, within the United States, the American popular music tradition, there's a whole history that isn't talked about enough, I think, in terms of how really the American popular music tradition is basically built on the appropriation and, and also exploitation materially of African-American music from the beginning, right? The whole American music tradition wouldn't exist without that phenomenon, right? And, and so I think understanding that history, going all the way back, right? We read um, Amiri Baraka's work on blues people to try to really think about the origin of the blues, right? And then to think about how does that, how did the blues keep percolating in the American popular music tradition, both through the contributions of African-American artists, but also through the kind of appropriation of white artists who are constantly taking aspects of that music and bringing it into their own music in a way that ended up being more palatable in some periods of, of history to white audiences, right? When did the crossover start to happen? When was there a kind of biracial or multiracial uh, listening phenomena happening. You know, we start to think about all of those uh, dimensions and the broader social dynamics that, that allowed for those things to happen. So I know that part of what you do in that class is, is you, you consider music which is explicitly political, activist music, but you also are equally interested in music which is ostensibly apolitical. Doesn't, so why are you talking about that music in a class about popular music and politics? Well, you know, I think, for example, pop music, Pop music, like most of it, right, I, I wouldn't call it political. And I think most people wouldn't. I mean, aside from the fact that you can see like presidential candidates using some of this music in their, in their rallies or something, it's not political. And it's, it's, about, it's um, done uh, in, on purpose that it wouldn't be political, right? Because it's meant to be highly relatable. It's meant to be music that people can party to if you think about you know, I don't want to give an example because anyone will dispute any example I give, but, you know, it's not meant to be objectionable. It, it focuses on themes of, you know, partying or, you know, sex or love, romance. And part of the idea that pop can be so palatable is itself an interesting phenomenon because it presupposes uh, a whole dimension of what is included and what is excluded in in the idea of the normal, the normative, right? And that decision is always happening within pop music. And so to me, what is pop always is about what is hegemonic in a given period, right? And that is always expanding also. Um, so when we look at the line between pop and what is not pop, it tells us a lot about our society. It tells us a lot about what the supposed cultural universal is in a given period of time and how that's expanding. Right? How is that expanding and what does it leave out? What are the sounds? What are the timbres? What are the kind of voices that you don't hear in a dominant uh, period of time? Really interesting. So we've just got a couple of minutes left. This will be my last question. So you and Kate all also uh, run a research interest group that's supported by the Humanities Center. Will you tell us about that? Yeah, this has been really exciting and we're 
very excited to work with the Humanities Center on this. So it's been a group, actually, of faculty who we've wanted to gather who have similar interests to us in embodiment and bringing that into the liberal arts, basically. And so we've gotten to bring a number of guests in to kind of do actual practical work with us on embodied practices. We bought, brought Rebecca Mark, who is an amazing professor of English, actually, at a Rutgers University, who came in and did a kind of writing workshop with us on embodied writing. Um, and then last quarter, we brought in Bonnie Samoa, who actually lives here in Eugene, um, who is lead dance faculty at Lane Community College. And she led us through a whole somatic movement practice um, in continuum movement for, for a group of faculty. So Anita, thank you so much for telling us about all the amazing things you do. Thanks for doing what you do. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. I've been speaking with Anita Chari, Associate Professor of Political Science and Faculty in Residence in the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.